If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is our number one. Of the World According to Zig podcast for March 12, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. This is the program where we talk about the news of the week and often the events of my bizarre life and where we provide you with a full two-hour oasis of honesty and rationality in the desert of insanity and deceit, which is the American media, cultural, and political landscape. In hour number two, as is usually the case, we are joined by a terrific guest, a fantastic conversation with uh, columnist and TV commentator Matt Lewis. Uh, you probably have read him on The Daily Beast or seen him on CNN. And uh, we have a great conversation about the conservatism in the era of Trump, as well as the rollout of the big Obamacare supposed repeal and replace plan in the GOP House this week. So make sure you tune in to our number two that was not originally our scheduled guest. As I said last week on the program, uh, we were scheduled to be joined by a guest who had never spoken before, who played an integral role in the entire so-called Penn State scandal, which is going to be in the news next week because after six years, the Penn State administrators are finally going to be going on trial for their alleged role in a cover-up of the Jerry Sandusky investigation. I'm 100% sure that they're all completely innocent. And later on in this hour, I'll be explaining the very interesting and newsy reason why uh, the guest that was scheduled for this week will not be able to make an appearance. Uh, It mainly has to do with the fact that he's going to be a witness at the trial. Uh, and I'll explain all of that uh, later on uh, in this hour. But there's a lot of news to get to before then. And the first topic I want to discuss it was the subject of my first column for Mediate this week. You can find all my columns for Mediate uh, in a lot of places. But the easiest place to go is our website, freespeechbroadcasting.com. And the first column I wrote this week dealt with this issue of Donald Trump and Russia. So much discussion since the election about his connections to Russia. Was there collusion in the election? To me, the bigger issue is why the hell does Russia want him or did Russia want him to win? And why is it that he seems so remarkably soft on Vladimir Putin and Russia? But I I take what I think is a very objective, as I always try to do, view of All this supposed evidence and whether there's more smoke than there is fire. And there's no question that there's a lot of smoke. I mean, there is smoke everywhere. Yet we still haven't found what I would consider to be real fire. Now, you could argue that there has been some real fire. I mean, heck, the National Security Advisor was forced to resign within a month after taking the job because they lied about contacts that they had with the Russian ambassador, lied to the vice president of the United States, allegedly. So Mike Flynn resigning, that's fire. And oh, by the way, it should also be pointed out, he's not the only person since the start of the campaign close to Trump that was forced to resign because of connections to Russia. Paul Manafort, his first campaign 
uh, uh, or I guess his second campaign director, uh, he he was forced to resign. Uh, Carter Page, who may or may not have had a role as a foreign policy advisor, was forced to resign from the Trump campaign. And boy, uh, he's a wackadoodle. So, um, and then this week, another uh, Trump uh, surrogate and advisor and kind of was a campaign manager at one point, Roger Stone, acknowledged that he exchanged direct messages with the hackers who broke into the DNC uh, who effectively were working on behalf of Russian intelligence. So there's enormous amounts of smoke. But I still haven't seen the real fire yet. And, and in a weird way, I actually think there's too much smoke. That you can read the, I urge you to read the column for yourself. But my bottom line synopsis here is it feels, and this is purely a feeling, which you know normally I rely on facts and, and logic, but we don't have enough facts, and it's hard to put together a logical scenario that explains all this. But my feeling is that the people involved in this are just not expert enough for this to have been some sort of giant collusion with the Russian intelligence agencies. I mean, Carter Page is, is seemingly insane, and, uh, and Mike Flynn was not ready for prime time. And when it comes down to it, the only and Roger Stone is is completely insane. Let's be, I mean let's be clear about that. Roger Stone is a nut job uh, of epic proportions. The the only thing that I keep getting left with is how do we explain Donald Trump's reaction to all this? And if Trump had not reacted in the way that he had, I would be rather confident that this is far more smoke than there is fire. But Trump's reaction is actually the best evidence that there's got to be some fire there. Now, maybe the fire's in a different place than what, where we're looking or where the liberals want us to look. Because the liberals are convinced any day now this is all going to break and the Trump presidency is going to be over. That's bullshit, okay? That's not going to happen. Is it possible that a couple years from now, maybe, you know, once they got, if the Democrats took the House, then all bets would be off because then they could actually do real investigations. But until the Democratic Party controls either the House or the Senate, and, and probably more importantly, the House, and that's a long shot, but still possible. Unless that happens, Trump ain't going anywhere, for better or for worse. And to me, I'm, I just keep getting back to Trump's reaction. One, his consistent, but the only thing he's been consistent about since the day he started running was being sweet on Vladimir Putin in Russia. Almost anything else is up for negotiation except that. And uh, and the, his overreaction to everything related to this, and specifically his overt attempts to make the news media discredited in the minds of everybody, the whole fake news, fake news, fake news, fake news. No, 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 no. Tell me why it's fake. I Believe me, I am as open to the idea of fake news as anybody on the planet. <laughs> I despise the mainstream news media and have debunked many, 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 many stories in the mainstream news media. But I've done so substantively. When you give me a blanket, fake news, fake news, not even going to address this, fake news, then I start to get agita. Because that, to me, feels like the thing you would say when you have no other answer. Then you have no other substantive response. So uh, check out my column on that at freespeechbroadcasting.com. There were two rather remarkable developments, and I, I keep saying how desensitized we are. In the Trump era, because things that would be huge deals in any other administration are happening and people are like, well, OK, yeah, that's weird, but it's Trump. So what the hell? Uh, and two of them occurred tangentially related to this whole issue of Russia this week. The first was we now have learned that Mike Flynn and I got to tell you, folks, I'm a pretty I know everyone thinks they're a good judge of character. But if there was one guy, and I said this consistently, if there was one guy close to Trump that made me nervous going into his administration, it was Mike Flynn. The guy is a conspiracy nut. He was not ready for prime time, and there was something not right about him, and it wasn't just because he was going over to Russia on the, on the, the dime of Russian TV and having dinner with Vladimir Putin uh, in, in his military uniform. That, that, that was part of it, but there's something not right about this guy. 
And not only has he been forced to resign because of his lying about his meeting and the nature of his meeting with or discussion with the Russian ambassador, we've now learned, and this is amazing, if this happened under Obama, oh my God, conservatives, conservatives would be screaming from the mountaintop from, from now until Easter, at least. We now know Mike Flynn was a paid agent of the country of Turkey. It sounds like I'm making this up, right? Or at least exaggerating. No, 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 no. No, he was paid at least a half million dollars to be an agent on behalf of Turkey. And the transition team for the Trump people were told about this. Now, Sean Spicer, the press secretary, basically said uh, that no one knew about this when the when the the story came out this week that appears to be at at best misleading and in all likelihood a lie mike pence did virtually the same thing i mean i'm not sure which is scarier that they're lying that they knew about this or that they didn't know about this this is the administration that has bragged and Trump bragged numerous times during the campaign. I hired the best people, the best people. I, I'm going to hire all the best people. This is, this is our national security advisor folks who is a Russian shill lying about uh, contact with the Russian ambassador uh, regarding uh, sanctions over Russia's role in trying to influence the election. And Oh, by the way, he was a paid agent for a foreign country. And either the Trump administration somehow didn't know this or they did and they're lying about it. And again, I'm not sure which is worse. But that would be a, you know, if Republicans are such hypocrites now, so-called conservatives, such hypocrites. If, if that happened with Obama, oh, my God, it, you know. It's just flat out ridiculous. And then Trump names his ambassador to Russia. And who is it? It's John Huntsman. Now, this is really weird on a number of levels. The first level is John Huntsman, in my view, is a bit of a douche. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's not a conservative. He was Obama's ambassador to China. And so, okay, I guess... Theoretically, he's qualified for the job. You're ambassador to China. You're going to be ambassador to Russia. I can I can certainly see that. You're you're at least in the realm of of qualified. Great. Except Huntsman during the campaign not only didn't support Trump, he called for him to withdraw from the race after the Access Hollywood tape. Okay, fine. You could actually argue that that's a good thing. Trump doesn't care that. Of course, he does care. But for whatever reason, in this particular situation, he's not caring that, an, that a critic of his, uh, you know, he's not going to keep them out of the administration simply because of his ego being bruised. But in a weird way, that makes me even more suspicious of the Huntsman pick because Trump must really want Huntsman to be ambassador to, to Russia. Again, this is Russia. This is not this would be a big deal under any circumstances, but under the circumstances of the last two or three months, it's a really big deal. So for Trump to overcome someone having been very critical of him, there's got to be a big reason. And then there's another aspect to this. Trump has commented on Huntsman's time as ambassador to China numerous times on Twitter and has ripped him at one point saying Huntsman gave away our country to China. <laughs> you can't even make this up, folks. So so Trump has publicly stated that Huntsman gave away our country to China. And now he's hiring him to be our ambassador to Russia, the country we're most afraid he's susceptible to giving our country away to. It's unbelievable. And again, the Trumpsters in the conservative media, silence. Silence on the Huntsman issue. It's, it's really quite remarkable. It's funny. It's funny, but it's, it's scary. Because 
These are serious issues we're dealing with. And the hypocrisy knows no bounds. And maybe no better example of the hypocrisy in the conservative media, in my view, is Mark Levin. See, I'm the kind of guy who um, maybe, I guess I am weird. My wife will be the first to tell you that. But I have a, a strange standard for evaluating people. And I, I definitely tend to, to evaluate people on a scale. And if I like you, and if I respect you, boy, you're, you're in a small group of people right off the bat. Because I don't like human beings in general. And mostly public, most public figures I have disdain for because... Generally, in order to become famous, you have to have done something wrong, <laughs> unless you're almost invariably, unless you're a sports hero of some sort. And even then, uh, sometimes that's the case. But I digress. The reality is I don't like many people and I certainly don't like my, many public figures. So when I do and you do something that I find repulsive, I, I react more strongly. Like, it's funny that I've gotten into um a big tiff online with Sean Hannity. I've, I discussed this previously where Hannity, for some reason, and I've written about Hannity numerous times for my, and my columns for Mediaite, but Hannity has gone after me on Twitter on multiple occasions. I mean, at least 12 times, which, and by the way, almost always like late at night on a Friday. And I'm thinking, Sean, you're a multi, multi millionaire. You're famous clearly you got to have something better to do on a Friday night than tweet at nobody John Ziegler. I mean, seriously? Seriously. This is the best you can do. Uh, and, you know, and I'm a big boy. I can take it, but um, I find it humorous. But, but with Hannity, I've never had, um, well, I have disdain. I've never really had anger for what he's done. Now, and the only reason I have disdain for Hannity is because he's the worst example. I mean, he is by far the biggest sellout. There's nobody close to Hannity when it comes to selling out to Donald Trump. I mean, I, I'm convinced that Hannity, as as at least uh, philosophically or theoretically considered, you know, changing his sexuality so that he can be Trump's fourth wife. You know, at least his gender identification. That I mean, or at least his mistress, maybe not his fourth wife. Sean, I mean, that's how in love Sean Hannity is with Donald Trump. And it's all because of the ratings. And I, I've even told the story on the old national radio show that I used to do that at the Talkers Magazine conference last year, I stood to where Sean Hannity could purposely see me. You know, he was, you know, like in a receiving line. And I just stood there with my arms folded and I wanted to see what Hannity would do. And he looked at me real quick and then immediately put his head down and, and walked uh, in the other direction. And I have, I didn't know for sure at that time whether it was directly because of me. Hannity's reaction sense has made it pretty clear that it was. The funniest thing is that Hannity has, has both simultaneously claimed in print articles that he doesn't know who I am, and yet he seems to know everything about me uh, and all the reasons why he's far superior to me. But the point of this is, Hannity didn't really surprise me that much. I never respected him. I've dealt with him enough to know he's a moron. He's not a smart guy. He simply got lucky. He's always just been a GOP mouthpiece. He happened to be hosting a, a national radio show, which began on, this, on September 10th, 2001 from New York City. Do the math on how it is that you can be, you know, it would be difficult to not be a success under those circumstances. He's never had an original thought in his life, and uh, he just repeats himself constantly, and now he, he's just decided that this is the wave that he was going to ride because radio is in big trouble, especially before Trump. And, you know, Fox News Channel was, let's, this is really important, folks. Fox News Channel benefited more than anybody from eight years of Barack Obama. Their ratings exploded. So they were in a bind. And Trump saved them because a normal, real Republican president would have been death for Fox News Channel ratings. But Trump is so unicorn-like that, at least for now, the ratings are probably as strong as ever. And Hannity understands that, and he's taking advantage of it. But Mark Levin, I always thought, was different. Now, Levin is... Good friends with Hannity, good friends with Rush Limbaugh, good friends with Ann Coulter, 
uh, Matt Drudge. They basically form a cabal. The right-wing media is a cabal. It has been for many years. The, the Drudge, Hannity, Rush, Coulter, Levin, Breitbart became part of that. But that's, that's the cabal. But within that cabal, cabal, I've always thought Levin was the most credible, the one who really believed what he said. I didn't always agree with him, but he was the most passionate, the smartest. You know, his voice can grate on people, but that's not his fault. The reality is I really respected him. And this week I wrote a column very subtly entitled, What the Hell Happened to the Great Mark Levin? Which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And it goes into... Basically, what my theory is as to how it is that Levin sold out. Now, he didn't sell out in a straight line. It was a very squiggly line. It was a roller coaster because he was confused, I think, as to what to do. But now he's all in, especially now that Trump has claimed that Obama wiretapped him with no evidence whatsoever, partially based upon a commentary by Mark Levin that that's not even what Levin said. But Levin is now trying to make people believe because he has to help the king save face Levin is now pretending that that's what the truth is, even though it's obvious. It is obvious to anybody that Trump just flat out fucking lied. He just made it up. He accused a former president of a major crime for no apparent reason. And by the way, against his own self-interest, because he did it on the Saturday before they were rolling out the new Obamacare replacement plan. I mean, what? Come on, people. Anyway, I wrote the column. And I, I had emailed Mark Levin before I released it because I, I try to be fair. I said, hey, Mark, <laughs> I, I, I will acknowledge I was a little sarcastic in my email. I said, Mark, I want you to know that uh, I'm writing a column about how you used to be my favorite talk show host and how you've now evolved into a Trump sycophant. And uh, if you'd like to respond, I'd be happy to put any response in the column. And I knew I wasn't going to receive a response. Uh, and, of course, I didn't. But when I published it, Levin did respond. And Levin wrote a Facebook post, which he then tweeted out with the headline, John, I should put it in in Levin's voice. John Ziegler has become pathetic. Which I thought was funny. I thought it was funny for a couple of reasons. First of all, the has become, I thought, well, that's nice. I guess at one point I wasn't pathetic. That's, that's always nice to hear. Second, as a married guy, you better come at me with something better than you're pathetic. I mean, before breakfast, I am told way worse about who I am by my wife than you're pathetic. I mean, so when you've lived my life and you have a skin that is, is as rhinoceros-like as mine, being called pathetic by Mark Levin uh, is is really not even going to register. And I guess the other thing is I now join a, a very esteemed list of people that Mark Levin has called pathetic, including, by the way, Donald Trump. I mean, he's called Trump pathetic numerous times, going way back. And in the article at freespeechbroadcasting.com, I link to a commentary that Levin did trashing Trump tremendously is a complete fraud and a non-conservative, which he was right about. But there was no incentive at that time to jump on the Trump bandwagon because no one thought he was going to be the Republican nominee or, or forget about president. And there was no pressure from the rest of the conservative cabal. See, I, th- I do think that that's a large part, and I would like this almost as a way of uh, of diminishing the blame on Levin because all of his buddies— all the other members of the cabal are so neck deep in Trumperism at this point that he's almost obligated to, to remain in the club. And Rush Limbaugh has become, to use Levin's word, pathetic. I mean, the once great Rush Limbaugh has abandoned all sense of principle uh, for Donald Trump, and it's sad. I-, I view Rush Limbaugh a lot now like I view Tiger Woods. Greatest of all time, amazing while it lasted. I'm now questioning, now that they can't play at all and they've basically become frauds and sellouts, I'm now questioning, did I misinterpret the whole thing all along? Was was Rush just the best of all the frauds? I don't know. Because it's amazing to me that 
when you have as much money as Rush does, as much fame as he does, what's the purpose of selling out? So you can keep this going on for a couple more years? So you don't need another house or car or airplane or whatever. I mean, I, I, I don't see what the benefit is. I would think that your principles would be more valuable than that. If It's just an anathema to me. I mean, I'm nowhere near a rich guy. I, I'm lucky to be able to, you know, raise a family, and I'm, I'm just hoping to send my kids to college. And I couldn't, I could never even think about doing what these guys have done with regard to their alleged principles and being the hypocrites that they are. But that's the world we live in. So check out the Levin column uh, at uh, freespeechbroadcasting.com. Now, the big news story from a legislative standpoint this week was that after having said at least a thousand times on the campaign trail that we will replace and repeal or repeal, I'm sorry, we will repeal and replace Obamacare. Donald Trump uh, took the first action, as did the GOP House, in trying to sort of kind of fulfill that promise. And by the way, I think that's an important part of the equation here. I don't think Trump's heart is really in this. Just like I don't think his heart is really in hardcore uh, fights against illegal immigration. I mean, he's never, he promised many, many times to replace DACA and uh, with regard to the Dreamers and the President Obama's, according to him, illegal executive order protecting, basically am, giving amnesty to certain illegal aliens. I don't think his heart's in that, proven by the fact that he's not fulfilled that particular promise. I don't think his heart is in health care either, but I think he feels obligated because he said it so many times and because you know Republicans have been promising for all these years, if we ever get the House, the Senate, and the presidency, we're going to repeal Obamacare. Well, <laughs> there's been a lot of uh, analogies, a lot of metaphors used to try to describe what's happening here. But really, Republicans are a lot like the dog who finally caught the car. What do you do now? Okay, if you caught the car, now basically the best scenario is you don't get run over by it once you've caught it. Because there, there is no good scenario here, as I see it, politically for Republicans. Because Obamacare has been around too long now. And in terms of metrics, has been, quote unquote, too successful. And I want to make sure you understand what I mean by successful. I don't think Obamacare has been a success at all. It's been a disaster. But it has rewritten the rules for how we determine whether or not healthcare is successful. And that matrix is how many people are covered by insurance. And no Republican plan will ever be able to compete with that metric. It's not possible. You're inherently, inherently, any Republican plan that's not identical to Obamacare is going to have fewer people covered. There's a story, story bizarrely on Breitbart, a headline out, I think, today, blaming Paul Ryan for this health care bill, even though Trump full-heartedly supports it. But Breitbart doesn't allow themselves to ever really criticize Trump directly because he's the king. But they're, you know, they're, they're claiming that as many as 15 million people could lose health insurance because of the quote-unquote Ryan plan. We'll find out probably this week what the CBO is going to say. And they're already, much like they do with the media, the Trump administration is already trying to discredit the Congressional Budget Office, saying that they're never right about anything. Well, why are they doing that? Because they know that the numbers are going to be tragic and that the news, and this is something that's, Easily understood. You can, The worst thing that you can do in politics or almost anything in the public realm in this day and age is to provide the other side with an easily understood headline. GOP plan will cost 10 to 15 million people health insurance. You're dead. You're dead. You cannot recover from that because now we've established that as the standard. Those are the rules now, which I have been saying for a long time, folks, we lost our last chance to repeal Obamacare when Barack Obama got elected the second time. That was the last chance. That that horse has left the barn. It's gone. It is gone. 
But we don't want to accept that. So now we're going to have to cut off our own nose despite our face. And so that Trump feels like he's fulfilling this, this promise. I'm with those who think that the Republican plan cannot work politically. It cannot work as policy. And part of the reason why it cannot work is because there's not enough time to recover in order to prevent a political bloodbath in either the 2018 or 2020 election. There are, as I've already said, a lot of different analogies to make. And I haven't settled on what I think the best one is, but since this is healthcare, let's use a healthcare related one. Obamacare is like a cancer on our healthcare system. And it's rather large now. It's taking over the whole body, all right? It's taken over a huge portion of it. Now, Republicans are afraid if we exercise the full cancer, the patient is going to die, right? Or at the very very best, the very best, the patient will lose so much blood and be so debilitated, (laughs) and there will be so much negative impact of the removing of that cancer that there won't be enough time for the healing to occur. So we're going to get blamed for all of that pain and discomfort and damage in the next election, specifically by the however many millions of people lose their coverage. Plus, you know that the news media is going to use that to bludgeon every Republican running for re-election. You cost all these people their health insurance, and you didn't even save any money doing it. So they're afraid of exercising the full cancer, so now they're trying to exercise like a small portion of it while also treating the rest of it in a way that, you know, may or may not, I don't think anyone really knows, make it better going forward. Well, that's not repeal and replace, first of all. And I'm not sure that's going to be effective because, to use another analogy, they're basically trying to make water without the right number of molecules. You need two hydrogen molecules and an oxygen molecule to make water. Well, what they're saying is, well, maybe if we have two oxygen and one hydrogen, we can still make water. No, 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 you can't do that. It's got to be two hydrogen and one oxygen. And what I mean by this is, even though, as Trump said, now not nearly famously enough, who knew, no one knew that healthcare was so complicated. What I think he's referring to is, I don't think he understood because his brain doesn't work this way until someone finally explained it to him. We have, there's a problem, Mr. President. You can't do what sounds not really good, which is to keep the pre no pre-existing conditions restriction without requiring people, especially young people, to have health insurance. So without the mandate, you can't do pre-existing conditions. You can't do it. You also probably can't do, by the way, keeping, you know, on your parents' health care till 26 uh, either. But regardless, you can't have the one without the mandate. And conservatives don't like either, at least those that are philosophically conservative, but they'll, they, they understand that the pre-existing conditions feels right, right? I mean, oh, why should someone suffer because they already have heart disease or cancer or, or whatever it is? Why should they pay more? Well, there's a damn good reason they, they should pay more. Because, folks, think about it. And Paul Ryan got unfairly skewered this week because people are so freaking stupid, they don't understand the basics of this. The basics are this. If you allow people to buy insurance after you're sick, that's not insurance. That's a scam, okay? Insurance is everybody's in taking the same level of risk and then the insurance company is betting that over time it's all going to work out. They, the odds will all work out so that they can make some sort of a profit. Well, if the pool of people is polluted by those who are only jumping into the pool after they're already sick, guess what? It doesn't work. That's the, 
you're trying to make water without the right number of molecules. You can't make it happen. It's not possible. And, you know, there's a political component to this that is fascinating because Trump has been making threats now. And he's been making threats in two completely opposite directions, which is typical of Trump because he's not big on intellectual consistency. The one of the threats is, well, if we can't pass this, we're just going to let it fail and let the Democrats take the blame. And what he means by fail is that Obamacare itself fails. Our health care system collapses, which, considering it's one-sixth of our economy, is pretty freaking scary. But that might politically be the best maneuver. It might be too late for that because I, I don't know how you blame, I guess you could blame Democrats for it failing, but you, you, you control both houses of Congress. So, and you're the president, and you're allegedly a Republican. So I, I think that might be a tough sell now, now that you've put your foot in the water. But that is incongruous with and inconsistent with his other threat, which is if it looks like it's not going to pass the House, He's threatening now to support primary challenges against Republicans who don't fall in line. And Matt Lewis and I talk about this in hour number two in our our interview in, in some great detail, which I think you'll find interesting. And I disagree. I, I think this is a bluff. He may not realize it's a bluff. He might not be smart enough and he might be too delusional to realize that it's a bluff. But it's a bluff because how is this going to work? Right. First of all, we're too far away. This thing's supposedly going to happen in the next few weeks. We're too far away from an election for anybody to really be shaken in their boots right now. Number two, let's pretend let's just give Trump every benefit of the doubt that, you know, there are certainly districts where there are conservative congressmen who will be afraid or, or be hesitant to support this because it's a crappy non-conservative bill, who in theory, Trump is popular enough in their district to where he could be a threat to them. In theory. But how does this work in practice? In practice, you need an opponent for this incumbent. So who's the opponent and what's their argument going to be? Well, I I don't see who the opponent, the pool of people who would be Trump rubber stamp Republican primary candidates is pretty thin. We're not talking about, you know, uh, former military generals or or titans of business or, uh, you know, people who have really accomplished things in life because those aren't Trump rubber stamp people. Those are Trump hold my nose people. All right. The Trump rubber stamp people are the people with the make America great red hats who probably aren't employed and aren't particularly well-educated, right? I mean, that's the reality of it. Trump himself would say it. I love the poorly educated. Yeah, those are the people who are going to be wanting to run for Congress on the whatever Trump says platform. And then, by the way, what's the argument against the incumbent? Because you got to remember, the incumbent in these situations are hardcore conservative Freedom Caucus people who have already voted to repeal Obamacare several times. So the argument from this unqualified congressperson with no money, because Trump isn't going to fund these people by himself. So where are they going to get the money? They're going to have no money, no real resources, no fame and celebrity like he has. And so they're going to run without any of the benefits that Trump gets, they're not going to get free media like Trump gets. They're going to have no advantages that Trump does. And what's their argument going to be? Congressman A didn't obey Trump on supporting a crappy liberal health care bill, so we need to primary him and get him out of office. That's not going to work among a Republican primary voter. Now, If Trump himself was on the ballot, sure. You know what? I could see that being effective, but that's obviously not the case. That's his magic to such that it exists. With me, it's just 
works. You know, it's magic. Yeah, his magic is not transferable, especially since he's not really that rich and he couldn't make sure, you know, if he could, if he was really as rich as he says he is, he could somehow gift all these, these fictitious primary uh, uh, opponents, you know, millions of dollars. And then, okay, I'd be saying that's, that's potentially formidable, but that's not going to happen either. The reality is this is, it's either a bluff or it's, it's something so delusional that it might as well be a bluff. And if anyone buys it, um, they're stupid. Because he does not have that kind of support that's personally associated to him. Again, no question, he has a cult. And no question, that cult is a significant portion of the Republican primary population, especially in some very red conservative districts. But this is one of those situations that's far more difficult to pull off in reality than in theory, which, of course, is what Trump is all about. Trump isn't real big on the reality. I'm going to build a wall and Mexico is going to pay for it. That's the theory. The reality is bullshit. That's not going to happen. So his threat is very, very similar. Very similar situation to the wall. And I hope Republicans don't buy it. My, To me, the best scenario here is that Trump is able to, because I still want Trump to succeed. I know people don't think that. I want him to at least be marginally successful for the sake of the country. I think the best scenario here is Trump jams this through the House so nobody in the House can get, you know, flack for not repealing Obamacare or not doing what Trump said. But then the thing dies in the Senate, so it never becomes law. Obamacare is not replaced poorly, and there's not the carnage that you're going to see otherwise. Because I don't see a scenario if this passes, and by it, it might be better. It might be better than Obamacare. It probably is a little bit better than Obamacare. But in the short run, there's going to be damage. And with the media now, which they would not have done under Obama, the news media is going to highlight constantly all the problems that would occur. Everybody. Everybody who loses health insurance is now automatically eligible to go on national television and tell their story forever because that's what the media agenda is going to be. And that has implications. And so politically, there's going to be damage that I'm not sure can be overcome. And this shouldn't be the priority because, again, the horse already left this barn a long time ago. It's unfortunate, but that's the reality. We should have beaten Barack Obama in 2012. If you wanted to replace Obamacare, that's when you needed to do it. We didn't do it. Now we got to pay the price. It's insane to make that price greater than it should be and risk more important things like tax reform and other issues that Trump has promised, which so far haven't really gone very far. So, again, Matt Lewis and I talk in greater detail about this in hour number two with our guest. Now, uh, speaking of our guest, uh, this gets me to other news of the week. And uh, the guest that was scheduled for this week was was a really fascinating guy who deals with this entire so-called Penn State scandal that I have been, unfortunately, investigating for the last five-plus years, which is going to become a news story again next week because the Penn State administrators are finally almost six years after the fact became public are going to be facing trial for allegedly engaging in a conspiracy to cover up Jerry Sandusky's sex crimes. And I'm going to explain that in a second, but there's, there was another story that related to that, which happened this week, which I also wrote a column about, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And this really exposes how incredibly dumb and corrupt the news media is and how often false narratives, once they're set in stone, can never be replaced, much like Obamacare. (laughs) Once it's set in stone, you can never replace it, and the truth can never make a full recovery. And I'm referring to what some people would remember was a huge news story in 2012, 2013, called the so-called Steubenville rape case. Now, Steubenville is a small, very small now, ever-shrinking city 
in Ohio, just across the river from West Virginia, not far from Pittsburgh. This is big Trump country because this is a place that has been destroyed by the steel industry and the coal industry basically disappearing in this country. I know Steubenville exceedingly well because I was once a TV sportscaster there back in the day, the early 90s, totally different era, uh, for the NBC affiliate there in Steubenville, Ohio, Wheeling, West Virginia. And the big biggest thing in Steubenville is Steubenville High School football. They're known as the Big Red. Powerhouse, have been for many, many decades, and it's by far, this football stadium in Steubenville is really by far the highlight of the entire town. Extraordinary. You know, it's a town that now has 19,000 residents. The football stadium can hold 10,000 people, has a video scoreboard with a horse that breathes fire, and has for many, many years, by the way, not just you know in this era where this is not that unusual. This, this has been for decades. The football stadium is everything. And their football coach has been there since 1983, I think. His name is Reno Sukash. Well, I spent an entire year of my life, and not just a season, I'm talking about a full year with that high school football team in the 90s and wrote a book about it called Dynasty at the Crossroads. Went nowhere. An amazing story. It would have been a hell of a documentary film. But the timing is everything in life, and the timing was all wrong. And, you know, a lot of it was my fault. But it was an amazing story and a remarkable experience. Now, interestingly, Reno and I hated each other's guts during a lot of the book. Because <laughs> Reno is a weird character. He's a legend. He, he's very close to being the winningest high school football coach in the history of Ohio, which is extraordinary. I mean, he's won well over 300 games in his career. Anyway, back in 2012, this story, this so-called Steubenville rape case, exploded on the national scene. Exploded. And the story we were told was that this small town in Ohio had covered up the rape of a girl of two football players, all because they were trying to protect the, the treasured football program and that the coach, Reno Sukach, had participated in this cover-up. And this was, it was basically the son of the Penn State story. I'm convinced that if not for Penn State, which was a huge story just before that, the media wouldn't have latched on to this narrative. And a large part of this narrative came about not when the story first broke. And this is, by the way, when, you, when you're when you figuring out what are the signs of a fake news story. Invariably, the number one thing you should look at is when did the story happen and when did it become a big deal in the news media? There should be a normal gestation process. And it should be only a few days or a week, okay? Now, if it happens too fast, that's a sign we could have a rush to judgment. But if it happens way too slow, now you know you got some bullshit going on. Somebody has decided that they're going to change the narrative and they're going to take advantage of it. And that's what happened in this story because the rape allegedly occurred to the extent that it was a rape, but that's a whole other story, in August of 2012. The story exploded in the national news media in December, January of that year. Now, why did that happen? It happened because a computer hacker hacked into the website of a guy who is a fan of the football team, not even directly related to the school or the team. And he hacked into it a couple days before Christmas. And he was wearing one of those Guy Fawkes masks that the anonymous people use, the anonymous hackers. The, anonymous is a very well-known international hacking organization. And they've got a lot of mystique surrounding them. And this person claimed to be part of Anonymous, and he hacked into the website, and he put out a video threatening the entire town of Steubenville that in, if the cover-up of this football rape was not exposed and everyone responsible did not come forward within, I think, a couple days, and again, this is two days before Christmas, he was going to release the entire town's personal information. And I happened to be online when this happened. And I'm like, and I had been in touch with Reno since the story broke on a local level. And I knew what the facts, basic facts were. And I'm watching this video. And I'm like, 
this guy doesn't know shit. He has no idea what the fuck he's talking about. And oh, by the way, the word Steubenville is misspelled in the goddamn video. And then I look up his Twitter account, and his, his Twitter name is KY Anonymous. And I'm like, KY Anonymous. So he's a guy who lives in Kentucky pretending to be part of Anonymous, which, by the way, turns out to be exactly what he was. And he didn't have that many Twitter followers. And I'm like, this dude is a fucking fraud. And so I went after him immediately online. And, of course, his, his minions start attacking me. And I'm thinking, this is bad. But I never realized how bad it was going to get. So I even alerted Reno the next day. I said, Reno, you got a problem here. He, he had no idea. He didn't even know what Twitter was. And, and so, sure enough, the mainstream news media jumps all over this. Because this is just too much to resist. They've got this dramatic, anonymous video with threats to the small town. And trying to break this football rape cover-up. And the New York Times did a big story and Rolling Stone and The Atlantic and Deadspin called for the, for, they, they called for Reno to be fired with a headline that said, fire this asshole. And my first reaction was, well, they finally got something about the story right because Reno is indeed an asshole. <laughs> but I can assure you he had nothing to do with a rape cover-up because the facts of the story aren't even remotely consistent with that because all you need to know is that within a week of this event happening, both of these kids who had never played a down of varsity football in their life were arrested and charged as adults. That's not a fucking cover-up. So anyway, long story short, I call the New York Times and I'm like, uh, I called the reporter, the female reporter who had done this story glorifying this hacker. They made this hacker out to be you know, some fighter for justice so badly by the way that Brad Pitt's production company signed him to a movie deal the hacker and I call him up I said you're getting this story totally wrong this guy is a terrorist and he's a fraud and she hung up on me literally she hung up on me and I was fairly polite to her I'm not going to claim I was totally polite to her but I was fairly by by John Ziegler standards I was polite so then I call her boss her editor and the editor gives me this run around. No, no, our story was accurate, blah, 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 blah. So I get nowhere. And, and in the meantime, I write several columns over the next couple of years for the local Steubenville newspaper telling, because nobody in Steubenville is telling the truth about this because the local media, they want this to be big. Because why? Because it's the only way to get the fuck out of Steubenville is if a, if a local story is big enough that, that, you know, that you can put that on your resume tape and you can get the fuck out because it's, you're making like $20,000 a year, whatever the hell they're, they're making there this time in, in 2017 or at this point in 2013. The point is, if you're in Steubenville, you want out in the news media. So nobody has an incentive to tell the truth except me. And I don't even like Reno. <laughs> Reno and I hate each other for all intents and purposes. But now I'm like advising him. I'm going to Steubenville to try to get him ready for a Today Show interview, which never happened. I interviewed him for hours about the case and tapes that have still never been released because he won't let me. But I mean, there's zero chance that there was actually a cover up here. Reno doesn't get fired. Amazingly, the team survives. They've actually gone to the state championship to each of the last two years and lost in like the last play of the game to the same team both times, which was incredibly depressing. But the point is Reno has survived. Uh, and uh, this week the hacker got sentenced to two years in federal prison. And a lot of the news media coverage of this, most of it, they don't give it much coverage because they don't like the fact that, wait a minute, their hero might not have really been a hero. But most of the coverage is, oh, my God, how horrendous this is. This guy has his supporters, this fraud, this hacker, this terrorist. Most of the, the coverage is, is related around how unbelievably outrageous is it that the hacker got more time in prison than the rapists. Well, if you know the facts of the case, there's legitimate reasons for that, but it's also irrelevant. The reality is this hacker was a terrorist, and the U.S. attorney on the case told the judge during sentencing that there, quote, was no cover-up here, and he did not help the investigation. And there was a victim statement 
presented at sentencing by the local prosecutor who went into extraordinary detail about what a fraud this guy was, how the media got sold a bill of goods, that they bought into a hoax, that their entire narrative was completely false, totally false. That's a quote about the news medium narrative about this story. And that this guy deserves the greatest, harshest sentence that the judge can provide. So finally, in court, among very reputable people with no incentive at all to tell anything but the truth, the truth of this story came out and no one gives a shit except me, which is basically the story of my life. So I wrote a column about that and the the whole story is amazing. If the truth mattered at all, if the truth mattered at all, I would have a hell of a documentary on my hands. But I'm well aware that no one gives a fuck because we only care about what's going to happen in the future. What actually happened in the past doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that people's lives were destroyed. It doesn't matter that an entire innocent town now is known nationally only for this and will be, by the way, for as long as Google exists. Because when you Google Steubenville, this is all that comes up. And the one source of pride for this town has now become associated forever with something horrible when the football team had basically nothing to do with this and certainly did not cover this up. So I urge you to check that out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Now, as I mentioned, this story is, in my view, the media saw it as the little son of the Penn State scandal. And the Penn State administrators are finally going on trial on March 20th. And this week, I had anticipated that I would be joined in hour number two by a former Federal Investigative Services special agent by the name of John Snedden, who has an extraordinary story to tell, which I believe blows apart the entire media narrative in that case as well. And basically, here's what that happens with that. And I'll have a column out on Monday morning for Law News with some amazing documents that have never been seen publicly, as well as the full story of why this is all significant. But here's the basics. After the whole Penn State story blew up, and Joe Paterno was fired, and the Penn State president, Graham Spanier, was basically fired, and the athletic director and one of the vice presidents were were basically fired and charged with crimes. It was learned that Graham Spanier, the president of Penn State, had a top-secret, federal top-secret security clearance. Now, no one's quite sure as to why he did, but he did. And by the way, it's a very high-level top-secret security clearance. And of course, once the story scandal breaks, the federal government goes, wow, we better look into this, whether or not he should remain, you know, keep his top security clearance, because why would we want a guy who engaged in a sex crime cover up to have access to top secret documents with the federal government? So they they charged a federal investigative services special agent, this guy, John Snedden, with the job of investigating the whole thing. And he spent the next six months investigating Graham Spanier and this story from every aspect from the Penn State angle. He spoke to the two guys most responsible for firing him. He, he spoke to um, a part, the, the university council who would end up flipping on him mysteriously. He spoke most importantly to his two co-defendants. Uh, he spoke to, which who have never done any interviews with anybody else, period, end of sentence. They only spoke to him, which I think is incredibly significant for a number of reasons. Uh, he spoke to the president who took over for him. And every single one of them, every single person against their own self-interest, sometimes dramatically against their own self-interest, raved about Grand Spanier's character, described him as collateral damage to the scandal, that there's no, they have no knowledge at all of anything having happened, no sense, no, no sign of deception, no sign of malfeasance, no sign of a cover-up, nothing. So Snedden puts together this report, which I'm releasing tomorrow, which has never been made public, the full report. It's humongous. And the federal government agrees, without objection, that Spaniard's top-secret security clearance should be extended. And I'll be out tomorrow with a document proving that it will be that it was in fact extended. Now, most remarkably, this information 
was made available or it was told to Louis Free, the former FBI director who did the so-called Free Report, which was the report that the media to this day uses as proof that there was a cover-up in the Penn State case, which if you read the report, it shouldn't conclude that at all because if anything, it actually proves there was no cover-up. But that's not what Free was paid to conclude. Free comes to the conclusion that he's paid for. And he was paid for millions of dollars, a conclusion that would be able to substantiate why Penn State fired Joe Paterno and Graham Spanier to begin with. And so he's told this, and as the former FBI director, you would think, you know, if you're an FBI former FBI director, you get told, hey, by the way, the federal government has looked into Graham Spanier's top-secret security clearance and has extended it after a full investigation. That might be significant to you. That might be worthy of being put into your report. Free ignores it. It's not mentioned in the report. He doesn't mention it in his press conference. He pretends it never happens. Like, no, 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 no. I didn't hear anything about this because it is inconsistent with the conclusion he already wanted to come to. So I have been in close contact with Snedden. I have these documents. I've talked to him for hours, and he agreed to be my guest today. Well, Thursday comes around, and... I get an email while I'm playing in a golf tournament, which was not great. Uh, Hey, John, can you call me? I'm like, oh, fuck. I've been through this rodeo way too many times. This is bad. Something's going to happen. Because I I was pretty confident this was going to happen because this guy's rock solid and doesn't scare easily. He's been in, you know, NCIS and an FIS agent for many, many years. Anyway, long story short, he's now on the defense witness list to testify at the trial and Spaniard's lawyers are concerned that if he speaks publicly beforehand that somehow this might discredit him or that the judge might be less likely to allow his testimony now I frankly think that's bullshit uh, and I've told for instance Graham Spanier that and he and I got in a huge fight over this <laughs> I'm sure he, I'm sure Graham was a little shocked by the I, I went um, you know I, I went probably more off on the former president of Penn State than uh, he's uh, used to. Uh, there's no question that... Um, These go to 11. Yeah, I, I went to at least 11. Uh, maybe maybe 13. These go to 11. Uh, in, my, in my response on this. And it wasn't 100% his fault, but because he was actually in favor of the interview taking place. But his lawyers, you know, overrode him or whatever. And, and even the person, by the way, who uh, is funding the, the defense was originally in favor of this and was made an appeal to the lawyers at the last second to try to save this, but the lawyers stood their ground. And these lawyers, all they want to do is they just want to protect their own ass. They're never going to say yes to anything. They're afraid of their own shadow. And I told Graham, I said, look, um, this is emblematic of a larger problem, which is that your lawyers think that this system is going to work itself out, that you're relying on a system that is set against you. The deck is stacked against you. The jury pool is stacked against you. The media is stacked against you. You think that by playing by the normal rules, you're going to win here. You're wrong. So I, I'm really concerned they're going to end up getting convicted. So the interview will not happen this week, um, but the article will still come out. You know, the, the media will not pick this up anyway because it's not consistent with their agenda. But uh, if you check out my Twitter and Facebook uh, feeds tomorrow, you'll see the, the full documents and the article that I wrote in an uh, attachment to it, which I think you'll find very, very interesting and further proof that I'm right that the entire so-called Penn State scandal is the biggest media scam uh, of my lifetime. All right, now in hour number two, instead of John Stedden, we're joined by Matt Lewis, so I hope you'll check that out because his interview is outstanding on a completely different level. Also uh, this week, one of the things to check out is in relation to to the Penn State trial starting i'm going to be heading to dallas or at least i'm scheduled to heck in my life nothing ever happens until it actually happens but i'm scheduled to head to dallas to do a couple of interviews with glenn Beck on both radio and television and maybe on facebook as well so keep an eye out for that because you know glenn has for some reason taken a liking to me uh john ziegler i, I think he's fantastic what a what a interesting mind he has we'll see whether or not he still feels that way after my visit to dallas but uh make sure you tune into our number two and check me out on twitter and facebook and please all i ever ask is share this podcast whenever way you possibly can on social media word of mouth whatever it is 
And number two, do yourself a favor. If you're one of those people who sleeps and use sheets, uh, stay tuned for this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.